Blog Talk Radio. Even changed the the song to that. Um, anyway, yeah, Stephen my, Brand- my, wife, my wife certainly likes it, <laughs> and I remember the, uh, the the original Cleveland Force. I think it was the I want to say the eighty six eighty seven season. They used that as the first song for free game warm ups. It's actually one of my it's actually one of my favorite songs to grow up. To be honest with you, I love I love most of what U two has. Anyway, you're listening to Stephen Keith on. Yellow Card Podcast. We have a big show coming up for you today. As you know, we like to have authors on talking about their books. I, I stumbled upon this woman maybe, maybe about a month ago. Her name is Tanya Keith. I hope she you didn't wrote, her. No. Well, then again, you know how big I am. I, probably, I could probably hurt the ground more than I could hurt anybody else. Um, she wrote a book called Passionate Soccer Love about her journey of being a soccer fan over the last 20 years. And there's some really just laugh out loud moments in this book. And I, I, I've read I've read most of the manuscript right now, which is just her her story about her story about getting lost in Paris and then getting mugged in Paris and then meeting Sam's army and Tom Thomas Dooley is freaking amazing. Um in the seven o'clock hour we're gonna do two things. Um Keith I'm gonna I, I know Keith has serious psychological issues about having Gus Johnson on Fox, but I have some questions about broadcasting soccer. It, as you guys know, Keith has been broadcasting soccer for at least 10 years at this point, and I, I want to point out something about Gus and Eric, and he's... Well, well yeah. for, first, of all, I, first of all, we have Tanya on the line right now, I believe. Hi. Let me unmute her real quick. Tanya, is that you? That's me. Yes, oh, Tanya, hello, Tanya. Please, welcome aboard. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? This is Tanya Keith. Welcome aboard. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I read through what you. Yeah, I read through what you had sent to us, and uh, the first, yeah, the first thing that jumped out. Obviously, I read the first chapter, but what jumps out to me is the way you came into soccer being and being a becoming a fan was really not a conventional route. You know, most of us get into it. A friend takes us kids start playing or whatever the case may be. That's not how it worked for you, was it? No, uh, I actually, you know, I, I kind of grew up surrounded by soccer. Uh, you know, grew up in northern New Jersey. Plenty of my friends played soccer, but it wasn't really seriously on my radar until I met my husband. Um, we met in college, and I met him on the night of his last soccer game playing for Carnegie Mellon. And uh, he was really into soccer. Uh, not only was he a player, but um, he was on the track to become a national referee for U.S. soccer and um, wasn't wasn't there yet, but spent probably five out of seven days a week refereeing a game after work or, um, you know, just watching soccer constantly, refereeing soccer constantly, and, you know, it was kind of a, well, if I want my relationship to be successful, I might as well try to join in and see what this is all about. Um, and, you know, he had this very contagious passion for the game. And so 
you know, that was in the early 90s. Um, we went to um, – my first game was U.S. versus Germany in 1993. They played in Chicago. And um, I actually went to see the German national team because they – I lived in Germany, and I like my connection to soccer really was through Europe. Um, so we went we went to this game in Chicago, and you know Jurgen Klinsmann was a player back then, and he scored on the U.S., which was like you know back then I was on the German side, and I thought this was fantastic. And then throughout the game, you know, the U.S. came back and scored three goals, and you know only lost to Germany four to three, which back in the day was like incredible to score three goals against Germany. And you know, I was hooked, just completely hooked. I thought this was the greatest thing. I'd ever seen. Um, I signed up to go to the World Cup in '94. We went to all the games in Chicago, and that was, you know, it, whatever started in '93 was locked down in '94. I mean, anyone that went to that World Cup, you've got people from all over the world coming in and watching these great football matches, and there's just like culture colliding everywhere in the stands and it's just the most fantastic thing and I, I told Doug then I'm like that's it we're going to every World Cup from here on out uh, I don't care we'll, we'll see the whole world um, you know we don't have to take any other vacations but let's go to the World Cup wherever it is and uh, that's what that's what we've done for the last 20 years what, what made you write this what made you sit down and write write this journey down well uh I started out, you know, we had all of our friends from the referee community, and they wanted to know about what was happening when we'd go to these games around the world. So I started out with an email list and, you know, started doing that. And then, um, like, a, further on down the line, I think I had a MySpace page back, you know, like, just to date myself, like, back when you had MySpace pages, <laughs> um, I would post updates on what was going on where we were, what kind of crazy things were happening on this MySpace blog. And then um, four years ago, I started um, SoccerFamilyStyle.com, which is my um, poorly maintained soccer blog. <laughs> but, you know, you just I would collect these stories, um, not just about the soccer games. You know, soccer is fantastic, but also these crazy adventures that happen when you're traveling around the world and the different people that we would meet and – um, different experiences we would have, and they, they, it became this kind of nice collection of stories. And um, you know, I would tell them at bars after the games, and we would all be sitting around talking. And you know, I, I just thought, well, this is kind of a nice grouping of stories, and I think I've got a good message for people. And uh, so I started working on the book, and that was three years ago, and I finally finished it. <laughs> so uh, blogging is a lot yeah. easier than putting together a whole book. <laughs> yeah, I found the refereeing angle uh, fascinating. Uh, you know, people don't realize, you know, for, especially when somebody gets to the level uh, that Doug gets to, uh, the amount of work and the time uh, and the travel that goes into it. I have a couple of friends of mine, uh, James and Devin Dooling, have uh, refereed here at various levels in Ohio. And now, uh, earlier this year, got their first chance to be assistant referees in a USL pro match in Dayton. And yeah, they told me about what goes into it. It's and then you so you kinda you kinda followed along that route with Doug as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Uh so 
you know, it doesn't take long to figure out when you're, well, I guess, I guess there's plenty of women that marry referees and don't get into refereeing. But to me, the thought of sitting at home, you know, while, you know, my husband was out refereeing games till the end of the earth was not attractive. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to certify as a referee and then I'll at least know what's going on and maybe I can make a few bucks working lines or, you know, going to tournaments with him. And uh, that became the focus of our lives for the early part of our marriage. Um, I, I certified to referee in 1993. And, um, you know, back then there weren't a lot of adults that refed. You know, there were kids that were coming up, but um, they didn't have a lot of people that could manage a under-19 game or a college game because um, it was, like, very much a young person's sport, uh, you know, especially in Iowa where we were living at the time and we're still living. There, there just weren't enough people to cover those upper-level age groups. So if you were a grown-up, it didn't really matter if you weren't experienced. Uh, if you were just old enough to maintain control of an under-19 match or a college match, they worked you up the ranks really quickly. Um, so I, I got into doing um, high-level youth matches and amateur games and was traveling around the country doing various tournaments, and um, it was it was really, really fun. You know, referees, um, I've certainly found more of my home, I think, with supporters and different supporter clubs around the U.S., but referees are really, they're cool. They're, they're so nerdy about the game and geeky, and they take it apart and, you know, just they'll, they'll dissect the game in, until really you're like, please, can we just order another round of beers? Let's just stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you're right about that. I know, I know the referees, I get in the um... – in the co-ed leagues I play and uh, to get that way sometimes too. In fact, there's one, there's one referee I always like seeing. He's the only referee I've ever seen who could officiate the match and also provide his own match commentary at the same time. <laughs> he's really fun, but he's very good at it. But you know, I'm, I, those of you who do referee, you know, my hat is always off to you because I know I don't have the temperament to do it. I, I do it for my son in the Upward Soccer League that he plays in, but that's a different set of circumstances. We're talking eighth graders at most, it's, uh, you're not dealing with the, these aren't, this isn't, these aren't high-level travel teams where the parents are very demanding, not just to the players and the coaches, but the referees as well. It's a very, you know, more relaxed atmosphere. But I know you, it's doing that is just at, a, at some kind of serious level, especially where you and Doug are, is just something I could never do. I just don't have the temperament for it. And so those, you know, those, those who can, yeah, I know referees can be criticized, and sometimes and they they get a lot of heat, and it's uh, I know the old the old saying is, you know, the referee has done their job well when nobody knows who refereed the match. That's uh, and it applies to all sports, no matter what. So I just I just found that a fascinating uh, angle for you, uh, you know, becoming so uh, into the sport, so passionate about the sport. Of course, the you know, referees. You, you listen to uh, any anybody officiates. I know some of the uh, get, you get some of the best stories from the people like uh, Jim Tunney, who was an NFL referee for over thirty years. Uh, Bruce Hood, a longtime NHL uh, referee. Ron, the late Ron Luciano was a great Major League Baseball umpire back in the seventies and eighties. And, and some of the stories uh, you would hear from guys like uh, Steve Palermo, another former uh, Major League Baseball umpire. Some of the stories and the insights onto the game that you can get from these guys and 
from an unbiased point of view, too. That's that's that to me is, is something fascinating. Well, you you get to see up close, although really it's not MLS, but a referee gets to see up close everything that makes a player tick and what makes them great at a close-up level. And you have a different viewpoint from everybody else, whether it be players, fans, or even the media. Yeah, you know, I, I find that it's really a unique uh, perspective on the game. I mean, you, you have to think about different things, um, you know, from managing the players to managing, you know, the, your referee crew and getting along with those people. Um, I was laughing when you said you didn't think you had the temperament. I'm sure there are some assigners that would say that I don't have the temperament either, but I made it work. Ron Luciano, I mentioned earlier, he talked about in his book, his autobiography, how he, especially when he started out in the minor leagues, he was just very quick to, set, to toss guys out of games. And he learned that the trick is to manage the game and the players and the, and the coaches and managers to the point, the point where you will have to toss them out. Because anybody can toss out guys. Anybody can flash yellow and red cards all day long. It, it's, right. it's the idea of being able to, it, it's not so much about fouls necessarily, but when you're getting dissent, the idea to be able to diffuse and handle the situations where you don't have to be booking players or sending them off. And you know, the, the, you know, said, you know, officials, you see the game so much differently, as you said. I, the, the best the best umpire story I ever heard in baseball was the the, the famous 1951 National League playoff with the Dodgers and the Giants when Bobby Thompson uh, hit the, the game-winning home run off the, the Dodgers pitcher Ralph Brank. And I remember the when uh, Charlie Dressen, the Dodgers manager, came out to take out Don Newcomb in favor of Brank, uh, Jock O'Connell, who was the umpire, tried to talk him out of it. Because <laughs> Thompson chewed and hit four home runs off break uh, during that season, five home runs off break during that season, including just two days earlier in game one of that playoff series. And he tried to talk out of it. So if you go back and look at Cliff Thompson's sort of, he has some great conversations with umpires about what he should do and <laughs> try to get yeah. advice on the umpires. But it's just such a unique perspective uh, on the game. And, um, of course, yeah, I mean, you, you have to have that kind of, you know, like detachment from it that well, I think you don't get when you're coaching. And, and you know, exactly. we, we I've done coaching over the years, and um, I, you know, so now I've I've been a a, a supporter, a, a player, a coach, a referee. We used to joke that we stuck with the refereeing because that's the position that the parents can't call you at home. <laughs> you have to deal with them on the field, and then you're done. <laughs> When you're a coach, they have your phone number. That's not good. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned, play, you mentioned playing coaching and supporting. Do you feel like your view of the game, especially when you're watching the game, differs a little bit from everybody else, especially especially your coaching? I mean, does your view of the game differ from other coaches because you have such extensive experience as a referee? Uh, I think... I think there's one, I can't remember which game it was, but there's one game in the book where I talk about how I, I just I momentarily hated my husband because he pointed out that our goal was about to be called back because it was offside. And uh, so I think for me with most of the teams that I watch, I mean, I love, I love watching soccer. and I'll, I'll go to virtually any game around the country. I mean, I'll, I'll go to any MLS game. I'll go to any... An ASL game, any PDL game. I just 
I love the culture. I love the fans. I love meeting new people and, and talking to them about what their team is about and what their soccer culture is about. But um, it's much more easy to, for me to be objective um, about a game that um, does not involve U.S. soccer. When it, when it comes to U.S. soccer, I lose all objectivity. <laughs> and, well, we're supposed, uh, we're supposed to. That's part of the deal. That's part of the fun of it all. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me to talk to referees. Um, you know, it's, you'll see there's different levels, of course, of commitment to refereeing. And, you know, the people that are traveling around the country and, and going to these elite tournaments and refereeing your kids at State Cup and um, regionals and nationals, those people are really serious, and they're probably watching a fair amount of soccer day in and day out. But then there's the referees that just don't make sense to me. They will go and referee, and then, like, they, I'm like, oh, did you catch that game this weekend? Did you see that? Like, you know, whatever, this team or that team, you know, are you going to come and watch the U.S. play? And they're like, oh, no, I don't really watch. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what? How can you not be? Like, I, I guess I, I am all in. Like, once I got into soccer, that was it. <laughs> it was uh, uh, both feet uh, uh, well, all the way. <laughs> I, could, I, could, I could see their view. I remember reading uh, John Feinstein's book, Hardcore. He devotes a pretty good section of the book chair umpires, and a number of them, had, I remember a few of them said, the, uh, well, I should say a number, but there was one umpire, I wish I could remember his name, I can't off the top of my head, but there was one chair umpire who who uh, went to, during, the, during the 1989, I believe, was the year he covered for the for the book, and there was a chair umpire who, was, you know, who uh, at Wimbledon, and John McEnroe was playing in a match, and he went off to watch the match which he said he almost never did. He almost never watched tennis on his own time. And so depending on the level of commitment, I could see somebody maybe developing that attitude uh, you know, with, regard, with regards to the game, although you know, obviously tennis is different because you don't, it's, not, it's not like soccer in, in terms of the, the fan culture and things like that or, or even the, the youth playing culture. It's totally different though. Set of circumstances, but I, I can understand you know, you're, I, you know, it's great to see you have you know, the, the love of the game that you do. I'm sure it helps you as a referee uh, in, in many cases. But but on the other hand, I can I can see that other end of view like, hey, I need to step away from this for a little while, decompress, whatever the case may be. Because let's face it, it's a demanding job uh, when you have you know, somebody, uh, an official. I can't think of who has said. You know, your entire career is spent making half the people watching the game mad at you. There's a whole subset of people that just don't like just don't like Howard Webb, and I, I think that's basically Liverpool fans. So, uh, <laughs> Tanya, I, I was reading through. I was reading through what you gave me. One of my one of my favorite sections is, and I know this is not the most pleasant one for you, is the, the whole going to the France game. <laughs> that was yes. that sounded didn't sound fun because I have a very similar experience and um Keith kind of knows this. I was in Italy fifteen years ago. I wasn't mugged, I was tear gassed at a game. Oh wow. Wow. So I, when I read I, uh... when I, when I read yours, I was like, Oh, thank God, I'm not the only one out there. Yeah, so uh, as if the, the U.S. playing in 98 wasn't bad enough, um, we we were on our way to the last game, and uh, we got mugged. 
on the street. And and actually, I I had a guy steal my my base. I was just wearing a stupid Lotto baseball cap, and he stole it. And uh, my husband chased him down, ran after him, which, which was great because he had this American flag on like a cape, and so he's like tearing off after this guy like a, an actual superhero. So he got the hat back. I was, yeah, it's it's nice when you know an everyday husband can like appear to actually be a superhero to their wife once in a while. Um, but he, we would, so we you know this happened to us, and we said you know we got this is not it's really sketchy around here. Uh, was, I think a Yugoslavia game, and um, I think that the security measures in Main Eight were totally focused on the U.S. versus Iran game, which was the second game, and it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of security to ma- manage the high level of tension that was going on between the Yugoslavian fans and the American fans. And so we we said, you know, this is really sketch. Let's just go over to the stadium and we'll get into the security zone. Everything will be good. And uh, so we headed to the bus. And as we're approaching the bus, these four guys came up, and they're like, hey, we want to take pictures with you. And we're like, no, no, no. You know, we just had a weird feeling about it. And we're like, yeah, sure, we'll take pictures at the stadium. You know, everything, just, just come on, we're all going to the stadium anyway. Let's go. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like this escalating tension, and we're, the bus pulls up, and we, I, I step on the bus, and these four guys grab my husband and pull him back off the bus. And, you know, I can't even, I mean, it wasn't like I was freaking out. It was just like, oh, my God, i got to get my husband on this bus. And so I linked my right arm around the, the pole, the support beam on the bus and grabbed his arm with my other hand and just kind of tried to pull up as I'm, like, yelling for help and get him on the bus finally. The, the, the guys are, like, punching him. I mean, it's, it's definitely, one, you know, in retrospect, one of the most terrifying things that's ever happened to us. Um but they're, so they have him, and finally, you know, we get, get him on the bus, and they're off the bus, and we, we get on, and we kind of assess damage, and he's, like, his thigh is hurt, but, you know, we're not, he's not cut or bleeding or broken bones or anything. But uh, we look, and in his security pouch, they've managed to get into it and reach in and blindly grab, and they managed to get our World Cup tickets and our rail passes for the next day. Thank you. You know, I mean, you know. They don't have your passports. It's like you kind of got to walk away and be like, all right, you know, like nobody was permanently harmed. We have our passports because we're leaving the next day. Um, but yeah, we we it was this, you know you're you're sitting there in the middle of France. You're it's a, it's literally the worst World Cup, hopefully that the U.S. will ever be in, and we don't have tickets to the match. I mean, we're just sitting there like, oh my god, what what now? What do we do? And uh, but actually, you know, this is actually one of my favorite stories of all of our World Cup travels because we end up going to this police station and we sit there for, I mean, it felt like hours, but I'm sure it wasn't that long. But we were sitting there and these two cops come in that can translate because we don't, we don't speak enough French to file a police report in French. And uh, he's, he just... You know, they're they're like Laurel and Hardy. They're, there's this tall, skinny guy and a shorter, fatter guy, and they're trying to take our police report. And the tall, skinny guy is very serious, and he wants to like ask us the same question five different times. And the other guy is like, "Come on, like let's go to the stadium. We we gotta go." So they they finish that and they get us into a car, and we're in one of these like tiny little French police cars, and 
<laughs> we're in there with two, the two guys, Laurel and Hardy, in the front seat, and then a third cop in the back. We're driving there, and uh, the, the shorter guy is telling us, like, oh, you know, the, the American police, they're so serious, and they just, they never smile, and they never wave. And in France, we roll down the window, and we, we wave, and hello, Cherie, and we, we're, very, we're so much better here because we are relaxed. And, you like uh, Inspector Clouseau, right? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, it, I'm just, like, sitting there, like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is, like, the craziest interaction with French culture that anyone will ever have. And uh, so, you know, we're, we're pretty much in good spirits. We're going to the stadium. This is, everything is fine. And uh, he's telling us the story. <laughs> and his phone rings. And he's speaking French to this woman named Brigitte. Oh, Brigitte. How are you? You know, in French, he's talking to her, and he says, "Oh, wait!" And he hands the phone to me, and he says, "Hello, say hello to Brigitte." And so I'm like, "Hello," and she says, "Hello," and I'm like, "Does Brigitte speak English?" No, and they're laughing, and it's hilarious, and I'm, I'm just sitting here with this phone in my hand, and my husband nudges me, and he says, "Oh yeah, tell Brigitte what French you know." And my husband knows, like, I mean, other than a few assorted soccer terms, like yellow card and red card, the only French I know I learned in high school, which is what everybody learns if you have friends taking French, voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? Will you go to bed with me tonight? And so I deliver this line, and the cop, like, dives into the back seat for his phone. He's like, oh, and the other two guys are hilariously laughing. And they, I mean, they just, it's, pandemonium ensues in the car and he says oh Brigitte hello Brigitte and he says I take my black book and I cross her <laughs> it's just with this like amazing adventure you know by this time we we get to the stadium and we get to go inside to this super secret security area and we meet the, the, the head of all French police and they're helping us look for these guys that, you know, stole our tickets. And, I mean, it was just, it was the most fantastic experience. The, I mean, the, the, even the police officers that we were working with were impressed. They're like, we've never met this head of all French police. Like, this is a huge honor. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's craziness. We, we end up going first half looking for these guys. I mean, you know, it's France 98, it's not like we're really broken up about not paying the closest attention to how we were actually playing at the time. And instead, you know, we go on this madcap adventure of, like, trying to track down these guys that stole our tickets. And in the second half, we end up sitting behind Sam Darmy, uh, which is our first real experience sitting in a supporter section. And, you know, like, once you do that, I mean, that's that's all over. Like, then we were hooked on being supporters and being part of the culture of American soccer. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of one of these, like, worst days turned best days experiences. Yeah, that that end of that story with the phone call with Brigitte and the story about where you were in Korea four years later for the 2002 World Cup, those were two. I wasn't sure if I would be old enough to finish those stories or not. <laughs> the first, the first I'm like, I'm not sure I'm old enough to handle this one. <laughs> but you're old enough yeah. to be a Liverpool. You're old enough to be a Man U fan. Go figure. Yeah. Well, well hey, it, it, 
Uh, you know, it, it's me- mental maturity, age, and physical age are two different things. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all we all love the teams we love for uh, yeah. you know yeah. the, the strange yeah, yeah, you remember, Tanya, I, I'm one of the few Man U supporters we get on here uh, on the show. Most these, you know, Steven and a few others support like Liverpool, Newcastle, Fulham, in the case of Russ Goldman, who will be on later to talk about uh, Fulham and his College Talk podcast. So I, because, yeah, because, you know, for uh, Man U, it's, it's like the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Yankees or Notre Dame football. You're either loved or loathed. There's no middle ground. You, you <laughs> So, so you dreaded red scum is the phrase I've had thrown in my face more than twice. And it, it's part of the deal. It's not, you know, it, it's a little weird for me because most of the teams I root for uh, are have been garbage for a long time. Uh, I'm a native Clevelander, so you can uh, you know, draw whatever conclusions you want from that one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but yeah, the, the the supporter culture here. You you talked about that. Over in Europe, you know, at that time, 1998, because you know, MLS was only in its third season at that point. But we weren't even then beginning to see the beginnings of a European style supporters culture here in the United States. And now, you, you look back, you know, compared to what it was back then, and now, even at the lower levels of the game, the, the difference is it, just phenomenal. It, it shows you know, the power of you know, the Internet, social media, what have you, the people being able to see what goes on around the world in different countries, especially during the World Cups, and now to be able to bring that here to America is, to me, has been one of the most fascinating aspects of American soccer over the last 20 years. Yeah, I, I have to agree because, I mean, you know, we live in Des Moines, Iowa, you know, just really Des Moines. I mean, I, I'm a... I'm a no, no offense, Iowans. We love you, um, but I, I consider myself a New Jersey girl, even though I've lived here for 20 years. Uh, and when I moved here, you know, I mean, the thought, first of all, I mean, Des Moines has come so far in the last 20 years as far as just culture in general. Now we're starting to be on every Forbes list for great places to live and all these things. But you know, when I started out here, I really didn't see. You know, you're, you can pretty much rest assured that there's never going to be a USMNT game, probably not even a U.S. Women's National Team game. Uh, but it, it's funny to see the culture develop, especially in a place like this, uh, you know, where we have our PDL team in Des Moines Menace. And um, we've got, you know, when when I heard about, so like I said, we were part of Sam's Army when that was going on. And uh, my husband came home from work um, in February um, after American Outlaws started, and he's like, hey, I found this website, American Outlaws, right? you know, check it out. And I sent them an email and said, hey, I, I'm, I'm a supporter in Des Moines. I'd like to know about, like, what you've going on in Iowa. And they wrote back and said, oh, we'll, put you, we'll make you the contact. And, you know, for the longest time, this was, like, the joke in our house was, like, oh, American Outlaws, Des Moines. It will be me and the three other people in my family. And, uh, and so we thought this was very funny that like AO Des Moines like here at our house, and then you know I started getting emails from people. You know, I mean, like I I, I referee a ton of soccer. My husband, everybody knows. You know, we know a lot of people in soccer, and yet here were all these people that were coming out of the woodwork emailing me asking me where we have our watch parties and where you know where would we get together, 
And I thought, what the heck? Like, I didn't even know these people existed in our town. And I think that, you know, that I don't know that that could have happened, but without social media and, you know, a support group that really understood how to leverage the power of connecting online. Um, you know, Sam's Army did a lot of great stuff for getting supporter culture started in the U.S., but when you didn't have an MLS team to kind of bound around, it was hard to get Sam's Army get any traction for a U.S. supporters group. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I think American Outlaws um, capitalized on that that uh, new technology. And, you know, when we became a chapter here in Des Moines in 2010, now there's like 150 people on our email list that are paid members. I mean, it just, it's amazing to me to see the like, explosion of um, supporter culture in the U.S. And, and even in our little lower league PDL team, um, when we played Kansas City, I always said Kansas City Wizards. We're talking about the 90s. When we played Sporting KC last year um, in the Open Cup, uh, we had 125 people come down from Des Moines. And, you know, we had like a whole little corner of the, the stadium. And, you know, like, geez, that's something I never envisioned happening coming from Des Moines. You know, like this, this traveling, yeah, yeah, passionate, the- traveling fan base. Yeah, the areas like yours and in the south, uh, we're seeing a lot of this come about as well uh, with as, with the, the 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 growth of teams as well as the uh, supporter culture. I think that's the thing. You know, the other places where they're getting new teams or whatever level it be, whether it be the MPSL, USL Pro, or NASL, they can see the supporters culture. They've been watching the games whether it be uh, MLS games, national team, whatever, and they and they realize, hey, they get a team in the area, and hey, we got to do this. You know, this yeah. is, it's like even the, I mentioned, you know, upward soccer. My son plays in. Well, this uh, upward soccer, uh, upward sports, is a national uh, Christian youth sports organization. Well, they've taken the step this year. They have a, prof- a team in the FPSL. It's it's you know mostly college players, but they have some people with professional experience. And I saw the pictures from their first game last week, which they won, by the way. They beat uh, Carolina Railhawks under 23s, 1-0. But they have – people have scarves. They have upward star scarves and other things. So it, it, it's catching on. Everybody's and got scarves nowadays. Yeah. Well, I think, and I, I think I we need them for our show. Yeah, we do. We do need them for our show, yes. But one <laughs> yeah. of the things I've noticed – One of the stage of soccer – Keith's nickname on the show early on was Sage of Soccer because I oh, would yeah. I would default going okay I don't know this and then Keith would go on a 15 minute rant about why David Moy should never take over Man U or or why Fulham is I just go okay Sage of Soccer so if you guys follow him on Twitter one of his many handles on there is Sage of Soccer on the Yellow Carded Podcast and yes, I have it I have it on I have it on my profile on Twitter but. But the thing that, I, to me, the best thing I've seen about the supporters' culture is we're starting to see that in other sports. And I mentioned scarves deliberately. You can find scarves. The other major sports leagues are licensing scarves, and so are the colleges. I, 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 live, I, work in, I live and work in Columbus, Ohio, where I'll go to Ohio State football. is everything. You know that, being in Big Ten country yourself, Tanya. But yes. I see people... During the winter, at least once a week, I will see somebody wearing an Ohio State scarf. And it's just like, it's going to be a soccer scarf. And, and, and all the other thing that happened is 
some of the people who are in the different supporters clubs for the Columbus crew all of a sudden got the idea, hey, we got nothing to do in the winter. Let's go do this stuff for the Columbus Blue Jackets. So they formed the Arch City Army, and they do the same thing on a smaller scale. They do some of the same things, like a, a little parade, and they have scarves, and they do chants and stuff during Columbus Blue Jackets games as well. And we're seeing the at University of Akron, uh, their men's soccer program, which has been nationally prominent, has, has a big supporters group as well. So we're seeing this not just at different levels of soccer, but it's starting to trend into the other sports as well. And I'm reminded of what happened with indoor. I, you know, I, first, I came into the game, I started watching as a kid outdoors because it was an American soccer league team a few, playing a few months where I grew up. But I first really got into an indoor soccer, the original uh, major indoor soccer league. And one of the things that was pioneered by them is the Baltimore Blast decided to put together this big pregame extravaganza to introduce the players. Put out the lights, they go this smoke, lights, bomb music, everything else. Well, now everybody does it in all four leagues. They all do something like this, and it was an indoor soccer started the trend. And so, yeah. this, you know, once again, soccer is ahead of the curve, and it's 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 something for those people like me who grew up in the seventies and eighties and remember the time pre nineteen ninety four when the sports media in this country went out of their way to bash and publicly demean a sport and its fans at every possible turn, it's like the old saying, living well is the best revenge. Like, look look at now. All you you other sports are taking after those of us who love soccer. You're stealing your taking all ideas and making your own. Can you imagine having a conversation with an NFL fan in the mid-'90s you know, MLS is just getting started. Can you imagine sitting down with that guy in the 90s and saying, you know what, one of these days soccer is going to be breathing down the neck of Major League Baseball and, and uh, NFL, and you're going to start to see the soccerification of every sport. Like, you're going to see soccer culture penetrating every level of American culture. Like, just oh, yeah. like 20 uh, years yeah. from now, you're going to have it. Yeah, that guy had to put you in a mental institution. I mean, oh, sure. you, that was like crazy talk. It was crazy talk. Well, that you would even be playing even, soccer twenty years down the road. better one, an even better one is uh, first of all, Russ Goldman is joining us uh, from Cottage Talk Podcast. Russ, I just want to jump in and make sure we introduce you, so you knew you, we knew you were there. That's okay, Keith. I I knew I was here. The <laughs> timing is perfect. I, I would hope so. Keith, before you get Here's going, I want, to, I want to wrap this up with Tanya real quick. Uh, where can we find you on Twitter and Facebook? So uh, my my book is called Passionate Soccer Love, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Tanya Keith. It's T-A-N-Y-A-K-E-I-T-H. And uh, my book is um, on Kickstarter right now. I'm trying to do some fundraising to do a book tour, so I would like to – Spend my summer going around to different soccer clubs and different supporter groups and just meeting people and talking about my book and talking about supporter culture in America. And so um, if you go to kickstarter.com and search Passionate Soccer Love, it will be on there. And uh, same thing on Facebook, Passionate Soccer Love on Facebook. All right, I want to appreciate that. And we will we'll be sure to buy the book once it's out. Yes, thanks a lot. I'm going to take your point one farther, and Russ can understand this. If you had told an NFL fan in 1996 that one day 
NFL team owners would be buying MLS teams, <laughs> not a snowball's chance. You never don't, would have believed that don't possible. Make, now, Russ, gray here. Don't make Russ have another gray hair on this, because I know, that, I know, Russ. That's not meant. That's not. I, 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 just, we're just. You're just making a point about how you know the soccer culture has changed and how much it's, how much of a in just 20 years what MLS has done in terms of catching up to the the four major sports. Uh, of course, Russ, like I said, Russ has his Cottage Talk podcast about Fulham FC, uh, who were relegated. But I'll tell you this, Russ. I only see that right off the bat, I'll tell you right now, I only see them staying in the championship one year. I think Felix McGat gets them back into the Premier League one way or the other, maybe you know, through the playoff places. I'm not sure if they'll necessarily win the league. It'll depend a lot on what they do here in the summer. But I think Felix McGat can make this stay in the championship a short one. Well, Keith, I actually really agree with you. And uh, it's funny because uh, teams that go down, you hear everything. You hear about... Middlesbrough, you hear about Sheffield United, you hear the people saying that you're not going to come right back up, that you're going to stay down, that you could go down another, you know, another division. I, I've heard it all. And uh, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to take the advice that, uh, that a blogger for, for Newcastle told me during the season. He came on the show and he said, embrace the championship. Embrace it. If you embrace it and the supporters embrace it, it can be a very fun year. And if things go your way, you know, it could it could really be exciting, and uh, and he basically tried to tell us, you know, again, this is his advice. This is way before Fulham got relegated, to you know, to, to basically, you know, just embrace the situation. That, and that's what I'm doing. That's what other supporters are doing. Obviously, we're disappointed, Keith. But getting back to your point, I do believe that Fulham can be one of these teams, like a Newcastle, that can come straight back up. And uh, there are several reasons I feel that way. One, you just mentioned McGath. I think McGath is motivated to get them back, back into the Premier League. So that's number one. Uh, you have an owner that is motivated to get them back up. That's number two. So I, so I really think that he will invest money to get them back up. The biggest part of the reason why I think that they're going to get up is that academy. The academy, the under-18s and under-21s, has a huge amount of talent there. And it's going to give Fulham a chance, guys, that actually this could turn out to be a blessing in disguise because if they take advantage of this opportunity of going down, they can reinvent themselves, come back stronger, and be a top-ten side. So many things have to happen, but if they, you know, they have so many players that they can designate, I'm saying as a core, they build a core around, around a certain amount of young players that they believe will be part of Fulham's future, you you, um, you surround them with experienced players, and we could really be on to something. And that's what I'm hoping is going to happen this year. I'm excited. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm over the relegation. I've accepted it. It's not a move on. Now, now it's about coming back up and not just getting back up. It's, it's being able to stay up in a healthy situation. And uh, part of Fulham's problems, guys, I mean, listen, I'm not saying it was bound to happen, but they were setting themselves up with with the year-to-year focus. It, it, it was a focus year-to-year to basically stay in the league. You know, you sign these experienced players, and basically you just keep you, you just keep staying in the league. But you're not really building future. You're not you're not trying to. You know, you're not. I mean, it's not that they don't want to be a top ten side, but again, 
I saw it as a short-term plan year to year. And they really weren't building on anything. They, you know, and that's what's exciting about, about what's going on. They have a chance to reinvent themselves. And I'm hoping that that's what we see. And use a club like, you know, a, a club that I'm using as the model is Southampton. If Fulham do what Southampton did, and and ironically, Fulham have have uh, have several members of that of that Southampton uh, academy. You know, the uh, the people that ran the academy, Hugh Jennings ran that academy years ago. He's now he's now in charge of the Fulham academy, and we have a couple a couple of other other members of that team are still with Fulham. He's done a tremendous job and uh, really set Fulham up great for the future. Now it's time to let these players be the core. And, and we've, you know, we've seen them sprinkled in this season, you know, as we were getting relegated. But now this is their chance. This is their opportunity. And they can't do it alone. Uh, you know, again, Fulham need experienced players. This is where Khan's going to come in because, because I truly believe that he will spend some money to bring in experienced players to, to fill around this core, whatever, whatever players he picks as the core, we still need experienced players to get us back in the league and stay in the league. And look at, you know, again, I use Southampton. Look at that core of players, that young core of players. They get to the Premier League guys, uh, and they end up spending some money. They do spend some money once they get in. They, they struggled the first year, but look what they did in the second year. They actually did spend some money, but it really is about that core, that core group of players. Southampton are on the rise. They're going to be in the league for a while, and they could be a top ten team for 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 an extended period of time. Fulham needs uh, to look at Southampton and say, "This is who we need to be." Uh, listen, hey, look at Crystal Palace team. also. I mean, think of, think yeah. of Crystal Palace also. I mean, they have an impressive academy, and they've turned those players yep. into fast cash. I mean, I I know I heard someone say, I think I don't know it may have been your show or something that that McGath might not be stained. Uh, what would you do if what, what would you do with the team this year? I mean, you have to, do you guys have to prune your your spending budget, your um sal- salaries down now that you're in the champions championship? Well, well, here's the situation. First of all, McGath is staying. That's already that, that's been uh that's been backed up by uh, Sarah Brooks, the director of communications, said that that uh, that McGath is staying. The plan is McGath is going to be the manager. So, so, so that's that's number one. Um, the interest, interesting situation that that Fulham have guys is that that they have several players. Again, older players that they could you know that that they could bring back, that they could let go. They have players that they can sell to make money off of. And they also are going to get the parachute payments from from the Barclays Premier League, and on top of it, so so financially, Fulham are in very good shape because again, when Mohamed Al Fayed sold it to uh, to Shah Khan, he sold it with no debt, so debt free. So so Khan is 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 still in a very good situation. But and this is a big but. They need to get back soon, whether it's this year or or, uh, or a year afterwards. They need to take advantage of this opportunity to build a better form. And uh, everything I'm hearing is is that that's going to be the plan, you know. And and hopefully they will put it all together. But 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 they you know again players that that we all know will leave. You know those salaries will go away. 
But, again, they have the opportunity to sell other players that, you know, again, might not be part of Fulham's future. And uh, that's up to them to decide who, who, who they want to stay and who they want to go. We, we talked about it on our last show. We rated the entire team, guys, the entire team, and we said, do you want this player to stay? Do you want them to go? And, 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 we, and it, was, uh, it opened up some very, very interesting discussions about the players that we currently have. But I think what we're all in agreement on is that it, it all starts with the academy. We've got to pick players to go along with the academy and bring in players from the outside. That's where spending money is going to come in. And, uh, and bring in some other players that can add to that, that nucleus to surround that nucleus. And, uh, and Fulham could really be in business. And, and again, I, I go back and I look at Newcastle and how they did it in 2009. And they, you know, again, they were just down for one year, and they and they took it as a chance to really get themselves together, and came straight back up. I know it's difficult to do, but I think Fulham can be one of these sides. Yep. I don't know what it was, but anyway, um, that was that was the that was the Fulham. Uh, Sound uh, wave we have, but uh, yeah, you made you made this great point about yeah. What were you saying? Point about the I said that was the Fulham sound wave that uh, was put in the 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 on the board. But you make a, a couple of great points about the academy and, and how key it is because, and I think, and this is where Felix McGath staying is going to be a, a big advantage for those young players. We saw uh, you know, some a number of those young players feature in the team toward the end of the season. And they responded well to him. Yes. And that's the advantage with these younger players. They've been in this academy for a while, so they're familiar with the whole club. Now you've got a guy who comes in who has obviously is going to have their respect, has experience at this level in terms of teams you know, uh, being on the brink of relegation. When, you know, in Germany, he had stayed there and would be able to keep teams up. But younger players... Ten, you know, in this case, they're going to be more responsive. So he's going to be able to you know, create a team in his own image with these younger players. Exactly. And, and if he if he can do that, they'll be successful. You, you bring in other players who are more experienced. You talk about unless somebody's you know really started to take the downturn in their career, you pretty much know what you're getting with the academy players. They're younger. Right. They're still developing, not just physically but mentally as well. And this is where a guy like Felix McGath has a big edge with these young players. We saw it at the end of the season. They really responded well to him in terms of the, in terms of the, the work rate uh, and, and, and you know, being, uh, just having a, different, a completely different attitude than what we saw of Fulham previously. And I think you're right. Fulham, if they do this right, in a few years could be in that top half of the Premier League once again. They've been there before. It can be done. And you've said that before. It's not, it's not like you want to start getting so ambitious where you're trying to get into Europe and all of a sudden you end up like a Portsmouth or Leeds. I think Mr. Khan, as you said, he got a club with no debt, and he understands that you know, like you know, like an Arsenal, like a Bayern Munich, like a Manchester City, it puts you in a much better position. Now, obviously, the financial fair play uh, rules, as uh, Carter Krishnire has talked about a lot, don't take into account the accumulation of debt. It's just a matter more of what a club spends. And right. 
which to me is ridiculous because I think, I have no problem with the clubs spending money if they have it. It's when you have clubs like Manchester United going into debt to spend money. That's where the problem is, and that's what financial fair play doesn't take into account. But see, Fulham shouldn't have to worry about that sort of issue. So if they get a chance in a few years to get the top half of the table, make you make a run at a European place, they're going to be very well set, especially if they go into, say, the second half of the season where they're up there 10th, 9th, 8th, and maybe in the, win, the January transfer window, they can bring in a player without any difficulty, without any problems running into financial fair play issues, and maybe make a push for one of those top six spots. So I, I agree with you there. I definitely see Fulham uh, in a couple of years, if this all goes the way we think it will, getting back, at not only getting back to the Premier League, but pushing into the top half of the table as they did a number of years ago. Right, and and Keith, you know, what what would be different this time? Again, there is an ownership change, and listen, Mohamed Al-Fayed did a, did a wonderful job uh, as, the, as the owner for Fulham for, for several years. Uh, but, but again, it got to the point where, where, you know, if you looked at the team, you know, the team was, was again, trending older when even Roy Hodgson was the manager, and they never brought in, I guess you could say, a real influx of young talent. That, you know, again, you went to Mark Hughes, and then you went to Martin Yol, and, and here and here was Martin Yol's demise. Martin Yol, when he first came to Fulham, started to play a couple of the youngsters, but uh, very quickly after that, he went away from that, and he really focused on experienced players. And the last transfer window that he had really showed that. Again, talking about players that 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 had proven themselves and. Fulham either had really young players, Stephen and Keith, or or players that were in their thirties. There was no middle middle ground. There was no no. There weren't that many players from twenty two to twenty nine. That's what they were missing, and that's what that's what they need. They still need. They still need players in in that age group. Real, really, the player that stands out right now in that age group is, is Ashkan Dejega. Um, but beyond that, you know, it, it's a it's, that's the age. Where they need to bring in some experienced players, not you know. Again, you can bring in the older players, but they already have some, you know. And they have some they have some tough decisions to make, you know. They really do. Steve Sidwell's out of contract. Do you bring him up? Brenna Hangland, you know, you know, we had a whole discussion about him. You know, do you you know do you keep Brenna Hangland? You know, Brenna Hangland has been an incredible player for Fulham, but he's also getting older. Is he part of Fulham's future? You know. Got some interesting, tough decisions to make. But, yeah, um, you worry about those. And you worry about those older players who are fullbacks. He was. He's played in the center of that defense. He's we a center. Saw what right. Right. He, yeah, we he, saw. We saw what happened the last couple of years with Manchester United when Fernando uh, Rio Ferdinand and Demangi Vidic started breaking down and having their injury problems. As they got older, so it's a very. Right. It's a very. There are some parallels there between those two clubs in terms of the age of the squad factor you talked about, and we've mentioned it many times, you know, Manchester United did a similar thing. They let the club get, the players get too old, and all of a sudden they all, a number of them couldn't do it anymore. I know, you know, people on social media said, oh, they don't want to play for the new manager. I said, I said, no, it's not they don't want to. They can't. They can't play for any manager anymore. They've gotten too old. They've gotten they got too old. They, they, yeah. And, and, and and you worry about that with, with your center backs because you, 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 you having you look at what look at look at what happened with Tony Adams when his career finally started falling off at Arsenal. 
You know, you don't, you, you don't want a center back back there who's 36, 37 years old and is breaking down and can't be in the team, is only in the team every two games or every three games. That just isn't going to work. Right, Keith. And, and again, that, you know, these are some of the decisions that they have to make. You know, you know it's tough to say goodbye to, to players that have been such a part of Fulham Football Club. You know, I was thinking of Aaron Hughes that, that actually went, went to uh, – went to QPR, and then, then of course, you've got, you've got Brett Hanglin. That partnership w- was so great, but at some point, you, you need to move on from them. They actually have some – they have a young center back, Dan Byrne, that could, you know, that could obviously – this is going to be his opportunity. He did it with Birmingham uh, on loan, and he did it uh, a little bit with Fulham, so he's going to have an opportunity. If there's a player that I want them to bring back that's a center back, that's Johnny Heitinger. He He's out of contract, so I don't know if he's going to be coming back. I hope that they bring him back. He's still, I want to say, 30-31, so I think he still has a little tread left on the tires. But, but again, you know, talking about players getting old overnight, Sasha Rita is a player that was great his first year with Fulham, and uh, second year, not so much. Uh, you know, I don't know if that was really age or, or just, he. you know, again, he got exposed a little bit his second season. And that's what's, what's interesting about this because they have, they have an opportunity to make some hard decisions and, and build a new club, and it's, a, it's about time. And, and I'm looking at this as a, as a real opportunity and, and not as this, you know, again, it, it's tough because, because it's scary. No one wants to go down. But if it's done correctly and you have, and you, uh, you have the proper support financially, which I think that they will have, can't say that for sure, but I have a feeling they will have it. And you have a manager. You have have a manager that wants to get back, and you have young talent. I mean, I mean, everything is there for them to succeed. Now they just have to put it all together. They have to pick and choose their club and move forward, and 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 embrace this like I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to be all on top of them to to be at the top of the championship because this is an opportunity. And like I've even said on my show. You know what? It would be nice to win a league. Why not? Why not yeah, treat it like exactly. we're going to win the league? Of course you want to be promoted. But why not sure. have the attitude that we're going to win a league? You know, again, yeah. you know, they would never have this opportunity in the Barclays Premier League. Well, now you have an opportunity, along with the other, with, with the other two teams that went down, such as Cardiff and, and, and Norwich. And yeah, it's, is, a, tough, it's um, a tough division, Keith. Uh, it is a real yeah. tough division, but you know what? They can get through this. They, you know, again, they can, they can really. I can see it. I, I can see it. I'm looking forward to it. I know the teams in in the division. I know it's going to be difficult, but I think that they're going to be physically fit because I truly believe. I've had time to think about this. If Felix McGath came in when, unfortunately, I'm, uh, you know, again, I, I was a fan of Rennie, but if he came in instead of Rennie, I think Fulham would have stayed up. And uh, Rennie, Rennie right, just Rob. wasn't ready for prime time, and it, it, it was unfortunate. I just think that 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 Rennie was, Rennie's a great head coach, and maybe someday will be a great manager. But it was it, it was a tough ask for someone that did not have that type of managerial experience. He had some, but but we needed someone that that had a little bit more than him, and uh, and it just didn't work out. And of course. The situation with Kerbishley and and Wilkins made it worse. If, you know, honestly, if they didn't come, I think things would have been better for, for Rennie. But but I truly believe that McGath is the right guy 
to get them back up and keep them up. And that's what, you know, and again, that's what I hope. I don't want them to just be in the league. I, you know, again, the big thing for us Fulham supporters, there's so much worrying, Keith. You know, obviously, Mitch, as a United fan, you don't have to worry about this. Liverpool, you don't have right. to worry about this. It is exhausting worrying year oh, after yeah. year about relegation. It's yeah. exhausting. That's rough. Yeah, that's I rough want them to be in a situation where, where the supporters don't have to worry about it. And, yeah. and there's that's a way rough. to do that. And that's building a club that's young and building a club that's built for the long haul. That's what they need to do. They have an opportunity to do it now. Right. That's, that's Russ Goldman of the Cottage Talk podcast, the uh, Fulham uh, FC podcast, talking about uh, Fulham uh, with their uh, going into their offseason uh, as they get relegated to the championship. Now it's time to switch gears a little bit uh, as we bring in uh, Patty. She is one of the hosts of the Women's Worldwide Football Show. Uh, pa- Patty, calling you from California. Glad you could take the time to join us here this evening. I'm excited. Thanks for having me on. I know so much more about the cottagers now. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Follow Cottage Talk on Twitter. So, because um, you're one of the co-hosts of the uh, Women's Worldwide Football Show. Um, unfortunately, uh, w- the topic uh, that has been foremost uh, in football involving women were the uh, recent uh, revelation of very sexist emails uh, sent out by Richard Scudamore, uh, the head of the Premier League. Uh, the Guardian today uh, read Patty, call to... back. Yeah. Patty, the... call back. Yeah, right. Well, the Football Association has, is, is saying they're not going to take any action claiming they have no power to do so, which oh, I find sure. a little bit thin because that's, that'd, be, that'd be like saying, and, don't, and Mr. Garber, if you're listening, Trust me, I don't think you would do this. Okay, don't misunderstand. But I think if Don Garber would have done the same thing, you don't think uh, Sunil Gulati wouldn't have stepped in in some fashion or another? He'd done something, at least. But this situation, obviously, nothing is going to be done, it looks like, although there are, there are um, you know, a number of groups have criticized this, such as our Women in Football and the Women's Sport and Fitness Foundation, so, uh, Patty, from and Louise Adams. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, Patty, from your point of view, um, are we looking at just a case of a bunch of old men with their heads in the sand uh, in terms of the people at the Premier League and the FA, or is this being part of a larger thing with, with the European culture being a bit different? in these kinds of areas uh, as opposed to what goes on here in America. Like I said, if, if, if Don Garber had done this, I cannot fathom being in his, him being his job for more than 48 more hours. Yeah, that's the question. You know, it seems like there's this big mystery that's hanging over this whole situation. I apologize because I think I got hung up on so I didn't hear your whole, the whole um, yeah. conversation before. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting to us. And I think that what's going to happen is, you know, we've been talking about this with the firing of Tom Stramani. It was there was a mystery hanging around it, you know, and it still is. And and I think they're just kind of waiting for the audience, which you know, I mean, mostly they're young girls, so they don't really care who's coaching the team. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, the majority of their fan base um, that there that there was something going on inside on the inside. And they gave us the talking points, you know, that he wasn't that it just wasn't working out. He wasn't fitting in. But I mean, the record. I mean, how can you dispute you know their record under Tom Sermani? So I think the truth will come out. I think that when it does come out, 
um, they're hoping that we've just moved past it type of thing, well, you know. And well, and from hiring somebody from the inside with Jill Ellis, I think for them is a brilliant move. And, um, you know, like most coaches, she comes with a lot, you know, her critics. But um, for fans like myself who just want to see, see the team, want to see the team win, I think Jill Ellis was probably the safe choice. And we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, to me it's a smart choice because she's been in the program a long time. She's been interim manager once before. Uh, Tom Sermani last month himself said that he never saw it coming and that he was told by uh, Sunil Galati that he just felt the direction the team was going was not the right one and wasn't uh, 100% happy with his management style, which um, some people, including Julie, Julie Foudy, have uh, wondered about saying, okay, if this is a problem, why did it suddenly come up now? Uh, we had Monica Gonzalez from ESPN on not long mm-hmm. after the Algarve Cup, which apparently was the tipping point for all this, so a very, a very disappointing tournament. Mm-hmm. I know Foudy has somewhat sarcastically referred to it as the uh, the wide golf cup. For I guess <laughs> I guess it's a pretty casual thing there. But you know, Monica wrote pretty much said it was a one-off. It was a you know a, an aberration. Don't worry about it. No big deal. And a couple weeks later, somebody gets the sack. But I, do you think Jill Ellis? having been in the program before and having been in her manager gives her an advantage in terms of, you know, and the results of the Algarve Cup were great, but you have to think that what, especially when key players such as Megan Rapino get back to 100% fitness, that she has an advantage in, trying to, in terms of turning this thing around and making sure they're ready going into World Cup qualifying. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, she does have an advantage. The players all lo- love her. There's no, like, transitional period. Most of the players on this team have been coached by her at one point or another. You know, she's worked in the pretty much, she's coached in all the, any, every aspect of U.S. soccer that you could have in women's soccer and, you know, the junior teams and stuff. And um, so, I mean, there's only, like, I think Abby Wambach and Christy Rampone are the two only players who have not had her as a regular head coach sometime down the line. So all these players know her, they respect her, there's no transition. Now the interesting thing about Jill Ellis is I think that she's not going to push back. When U.S. soccer wants to implement something or to do something, I don't think Jill Ellis is really the type of person to push back. I'm not saying she's a puppet or anything like that. I'm just saying she's not one to ruffle feathers. Um, You know, Tom Sermoni is interesting because in January, U.S. women's national team were playing Canada they went with this 4-3-3 formation. It was interesting because they were like, wow, 4-3-3, where'd that come from? Um, something that the U.S. women's team just generally doesn't do. And then the China game came along. They still put in the 4-3-3. was interesting. And then the firing of Sermani, here comes Jill Ellis, and we're still seeing the 4-3-3. And the 4-3-3 is going to continue because even the players are talking. You hear them a lot in their post-game press conferences as they're getting used to this new formation. So that formation, to me, it seems like came from U.S. soccer because if, Sarma, if Sermani had implemented it and they didn't like it, why is Jill Sermani, I mean, I'm sorry, Jill Ellis continuing it? So that's just one little thing that makes you think, hmm, it makes, it, it's the one thing that makes you ponder that who's running the show, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think you make a good point, especially in terms of the personality thing. Like I said, you know, Tom Sermani, Julie Foudy had talked about it in her a college hero right after he was sacked, and even Sunil Galati had said when she when he, she was appointed, you know, she's also coached the under twenty team and the under twenty one team. She has a tremendous amount of experience 
with all these players as well as just three different uh, national teams. So you have you have to say you talk about the you know, pushback. I think it's just more a case of the, someone that the federation feels more comfortable with, as well as the players. I, and I and I had said this before. When, and I said before when, when this first came down, is I think what another I think this is just purely my personal opinion. I don't have the inside knowledge or anything, but I think one of the things mm-hmm. that U.S. soccer is thinking about is in terms of the last World Cup qualifying campaign where they had to go down to a playoff at the end to qualify for the last World Cup. And I think U.S. soccer's thinking is probably we don't want to be in that position again. So instead of waiting for the campaign to start in October where we're hosting mine, you're hosting Concap qualifying, instead of waiting for a couple of games then, and they're making change, let's make the change now while it's easier. Because this way you, you're basically you're coming, you're going to be going into the summer friendlies with a fresh start and a different, hopefully a different attitude. And so when World Cup qualifying comes along, uh, Hopefully everything is, is uh, you know, normal service has been restored, as, as they say uh, in England. Do you think that the, the, the timing could be related to the, the World Cup qualifying campaign? Oh, absolutely. I, I definitely see your point. I mean, wouldn't you like to have happy campers going into all these, these, these qualifiers <laughs> oh, yeah. and kind of a mixed bag of some people, um, whatever their, their issues were with Sermani, we, uh, we know it wasn't a mutiny. Um, but we know there were a few players who were unhappy, obviously, and maybe even staff. So, um, obvi- yeah, to get Jill Ellis in here, who everybody loves, I've never heard any anything bad said about her. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it, it seemed like a, the timing was perfect. If they were going to do it anytime, you know, now would have been the, the time to do it, and especially after Algarve. It left kind of a bad taste in people's mouths. Um, Steve, were you going to say something there? I thought you were going to tell me you were going to jump in. Now, you no, know, the other criticism... Yeah. <laughs> I don't jump, so you don't have to worry about that. Okay, well, neither do I. Well, I jumped a little bit last <laughs> night, but not high enough in one case. So we were talking, I was talking about Richard Scudamore and the FA in the Premier League, and... Um, yeah, the F the FA again has said that because he was not an employee of the FA, they can't take any action against him. He's running the Premier League, and mm-hmm. I still find that to be an appalling decision. I really do. I can't. Believe, I find hard to believe that the FA, which is supposed to be the governing body for the entire country in England, can't say to the Premier League, which it authorizes, "Take You've got to do something about this. And you know, the, the parallel everybody is making is to Donald Sterling here in the NBA in the United States. You know, this was a case of he was using the, the, the claims. See, to me, the claims, there's talk about the claims of privacies or private emails. Well, guess what? They were his Premier League emails. Those were his Premier League email account. That puts it in a completely different category, in my opinion. If he's doing this as his own personal account, then it gets cloudier. Then it gets more of a gray, murky area. Then you can have, then there's a, a real debate on both sides, but he was, this was he was doing business as the head of the FA in making these emails, just as Donald Sterling said what he said in terms of his team. You know, he said he did not want this woman bringing black guys to to the games. If mm-hmm. he says that, if he just says I don't want you hanging around black people, that's a different story. 
but he was talking about how he does business, and that's what Richard Scudamore was doing. He was doing business as part of his job in the FA, making these kinds of emails and comments. And I, like I said, I cannot fathom here in the United States that being allowed. And so that my, you know, my original question was, and I'm sorry you got cut off on that, was are we looking at a bunch of people with their heads in the sand, or is this part of a broader European male, whatever you want to call it, thing that doesn't necessarily exist here in America anymore? Well, that's why I was saying there's got to be something else. There's got to be something we're not being told. And, yeah. and you know, that, and that's, I mean, it's, what, what is it, you know? And, it, and, it, and I do believe it'll come out, but I think it'll come out, like, later on when we've moved on. You know, I mean, that's the only way I could think of it because there's no other, I'm, I'm with you on it. I, I thought it was, uh, I mean, they should have get. I, there's no other reason other than the fact that the, the couple of reasons that they gave us was that it wasn't working out, um, but that they did talk to some players and staff and, you know, got their opinions on it. But, I, you know, we've heard, I've heard some rumors that are kind of salacious and I wouldn't want to get into it, but, you know, because, it's, it's, you know, where rumors come from, but... You, we don't, well, we don't really of, know what the full story is. Yeah, one of the chairs of one of the inclusion advisory boards of the FA, Heather Rabbits, uh, has said in the Gar- story on the Guardian's website that uh, she is going to try to do what she can to see that the Premier League uh, is taken to task about this in terms of make them taking further steps to uh, continue uh, their, po- their policies they have in terms of inclusion and diversity with regards to uh, women in football. And um, you know, she, uh, she did, did say that she was glad, at least, that Mr. Scudamore made an apology of this, but, uh, but she had also said that this was part of a, a what she called a, a closed culture of sexism in the Premier League and, and says that there are going to be meetings uh, coming along later. The, the woman who, uh, who actually leaked the emails has um, said that uh, you know, she is disappointed by the fact that the, the, neither the Premier League nor the FA are taking any action on this, although she did say she wants uh, an apology and an acknowledgement that he did wrong and not necessarily uh, his resignation. And, and she did say, uh, or is uh, Ronnie Abraham, by the way, and oh, okay. neither the Premier League nor the FA have contacted her at, up to this point. This story uh, was put up earlier this afternoon here, uh, at least our time here in the United States. So, um, and it go and there was another uh, story I had read. Uh, there was also on uh, the Guardian uh, showing the uh, for the group women in football saying, and we mentioned this the, uh, last week. We talked about this as well about more than two thirds of women in football in, in the UK have experienced uh, sexist discrimination. At some point, and uh, you, know, I just, I just wonder in the case of, I just wonder. I know your your partner on the show, he's he's English, and I, I'm sorry, I blanked on his name. I want to make sure I give him a shout Adam out. Adam Barlow, yeah, he's unfortunately he's English. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yes, well, that's, I, that's, that's that, normally that's a good thing, but but you know, Adam could probably Adam could probably speak to this more. But to me, this. There is a little different culture with regards to to sexism. Uh, I, we had Tony Keith, who was on, was talking about an experience she had in France during the 1998 World Cup, where one of the she was 
that her and her husband were unfortunately mugged while they were in Paris. But one of the uh, police officers she was talking to in Paris was saying how the, the European police officers are so much different from the Americans. How, and she mentioned how uh, the, the police, at least in, in Paris anyway, police officers would be very, would be very more friendlier. She said they say they say hello, Cherie, to women, uh, uh, they would see and encounter things like that. Yeah, I just All have right. to wonder maybe just the the overall European culture uh, in terms of male female relationship and sexism and that sort of thing let, lends itself to this because it, you know it doesn't it's not like here in the United States where you know, we see you know women in very big positions of power whether it be on uh, whether it be on boards whether it be in sports television what what have you it's you know, we're we're I. I don't want to sound arrogant by saying we're ahead of mm-hmm. the curve, but it seems like we're in a different place here in America than they are in Europe. And I have to wonder, are, are we looking at maybe you know, a longer kind of a, a transitional period or whatever you want to call it for Europe to kind of get to the point where the United States is now, and how would you go about doing that? Yeah. Well, just to give you an idea, I'm talking about that, because Adam actually talking about reverse discrimination. You know, Adam reports on women's football, and he, you know, there's plenty of times I go to the U17 or the U20 matches, and he never goes to the England U17 matches. And, I, you know, I told him, like, why don't you go to the U17 or get some pictures of the U20? He's like, oh, it looks, they look down upon men. You know, I don't want to be a man hanging around in the U17 games. I'm like, what? Because there's plenty of fans. There are plenty of grown men who are fans of the U17 where they have daughters playing or whatever. And um, that to me is, seems a little backward. I mean, but that's the way that, yeah, you're right. There, there is a little bit of a, a, a weird curve. I, I just use that as an, because that was one of his experiences that he shared with me that I thought well, was just totally other. I never yeah, thought of that before. Well, I, obviously, I haven't been there. I didn't see that, but but I can tell you from experience myself, I can see where he's coming from, but I don't, I don't necessarily think it's maybe a, a sexist thing. I think it's the mm-hmm. age thing. Because I know I've covered a lot of high school sports here in Ohio, and I am always very, very careful in terms of interacting with students, male or female, because I don't Mm -hmm. want to get you. It's it's, it's a hazardous situation to step into. But if you're going as a reporter, I mean, you would think there's different standards if you're going there to report on the match. Sort of. You still don't want to be seen as doing anything that's out of line. So I can see where he's coming from. I don't think it's necessarily a sexist thing. Now, in terms of the media, well, I'm going to shut up on that one because Stephen's heard my rants about it before and he doesn't want to hear it again, and I don't want to get myself <laughs> in any sort of trouble. I get trouble that a either. lot, too. <laughs> but, but, yeah, you know, I I have emails from him. I have I, I, I could write a war and peace on Keith's view of the media and make it a bestseller easily with the amount of with the amount of emails I have from him and they're all like one they're all like paragraph form, which is quite impressive. And I'm not even I'm not even mentioning mentioning the guy that's calling the Champions League on Saturday because that will that will send Keith to a low level of pissed off that will make him run from run from his office right now down the street for a while. Yeah, Gus Judge. <laughs> oh, don't go. I can, I can feel my blood pressure beginning to creep up very, very slowly on that subject. Drink <laughs> anyway, water. I read those emails. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I know. I just, uh, I, I, 
Stephen will tell you, my, my, my media career is, well, let's just say it's not where I think it should be. <laughs> let's just put it to you that way. Join and, the club. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, I know that's oh, yes. it's one of the it's one of the reasons it's one of the reasons why I do this. You know, I try you know, trying to you know, keep a hand in there, you know, make some kind of name for myself in a little bit different area and I'm sure that's part of your reasoning too, but we're we are talking to Patty, the co host of the uh women's worldwide football show uh here on the uh Yellow Carter podcast on Blog Talk Radio. We've got about ten minutes left. Um there was one of the subjects, but I'm not going to go into because that's another one Stephen's heard a few times before already. But as far as your show and social media, how can people find your show, find you on Twitter, Facebook, whatever the case may be? Well, we're actually called the Women's World Football Show, and our handle is WWF Show. So if you're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, that's pretty much where you'll find us. And uh, our, our website, you can listen to all our shows at um, WWFshow.com. So, and you know what? I really appreciate that you guys are carving out time to talk about the women's game because I know you guys have done it, you know, a few times in your in segments. And, you know, we appreciate it because not a lot of shows like yours give us the time of day, and, and that really helps grow the game. And, you know, the audience appreciates it, and it doesn't, it's not lost on, on us fans of the women's game for sure. So we really appreciate it. it. That, that well, well, thank you. Thought why I, I did the, that's the, part of the reason why I did the show and started up the show and have Keith on it is that I don't want to be that podcast that talks about the talks about Lionel Messi, the La Liga, and the U.S. men's team every week because as much as much as I want to sit here and rail on Manchester United and talk about the important things, there there's as you as you can say as you can say there there's thousands of things to talk about in the sport and we haven't even gotten to half of it. It's, it's probably one of the great reasons why. Why this show is run by an ADD guy, so I, I can't I can't even plan I can't even plan the show down too much. But want to thank thank you for having you on because I I have a comment I want to get to with Keith and he he knows where okay. I'm going on. All right, thanks a lot. Yeah, Mike. I really appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate you coming. Like so we we try to cover all the levels, and we've had people on our show from you know from from the you know, the, the NPSL all the way up to the both national. So it's so it's uh, yeah we try we try not to be the usual podcast. So Stephen, where were you going next? Now, now you know where I'm going on this, and this is I I'm not trying to get your blood boiling on this, but here's the problem I keep reading about Gus and Eric Winalda is, and this is the huge issue I have it now. You're you're a play by play man by trade. I've done very limited color commentary in my life. I've I've helped out people doing college college football games. Part of the thing I re- keep reading is that there's no synergy between the two. Now you've you've covered what all you've done all sports. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Now here's my problem with co- covering soccer, and I've heard this from a bunch of people that it is truly one of the harder sports to cover. Well, it is, and the parallel I always draw is to baseball. And this was something that I remember the 2006 World Cup, if you'll recall, um, and now it's Dave O'Brien. Thank you. Dave O'Brien of ESPN did a few games, and he got a lot of heat. That people didn't think he was that good or anything, and I disagree. 
because the, the trick with baseball and the trick with soccer, too, is this applies in tennis and golf as well, is sometimes the best thing to say is nothing. The game lends itself to periods where you've got to let the game breathe, where there isn't a whole lot uh, happening. Uh, you look at, uh, you know, in, in soccer, you know, a team, you know, say, uh, you know, a, fight, a 50-50 fight for the ball right near the halfway line, team wins it, and they play it back to one of their fullbacks and maybe even to their goalkeeper, it's a chance where you can catch your breath. You don't necessarily have to say, say a whole lot. It's similarly, especially nowadays, with, with the advent of HTTV and the wider screens and everything, you, you don't have to say as much uh, necessarily beyond, especially if a team's just starting out of their own half of the field, where you don't have to say much in terms of, uh, you know, other than just who has the ball, identifying the player with the ball. Obviously, when we get to the attacking third, it's a little different story. But you know, the, the trick is not to over-talk it. And, you know, sometimes less is more. And I think, and I thought, I thought Dave O'Brien was very good on soccer because he came from the sport, the sport of baseball, which he does a lot for ESPN, and I think at least one of the major league teams. Where he just said, "There's time for silence, and it's okay to be quiet because there are lulls." And it's, it, it, obviously, it's a little, you know, it's a little different rhythm to it in terms of soccer and baseball. But that's that's the parallel I draw um, as far as that. I'm talking in a television sense. Your know, radio obviously would be difficult. You know, soccer on radio, it's not like it's South America, uh, obviously. Where you, you can just lose your collective crap on air. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, you, know, you read about, especially you read about the 1950 World Cup and the final match between uh, Brazil and Uruguay, uh, how all of Brazil was in their houses. Those who were at the, uh, at the uh, Estadio Maracanã were all in their houses listening to the match on radio. And the radio is still an important part of following the match in South America, because the television transmission is not like it is here in the United States. There are a lot of remote, isolated areas. So it's difficult from there to think you have to talk all the time. But I remember, the line I remember was, um, I believe George Burns was talking about Jack Benny when they first uh, got, went from, made the transition from vaudeville into radio. And, um, of course, you're obviously dealing with nothing but sound. And George Burns says, most of us were trying to figure out how to use the sound, but Jack Benny was smart enough to figure out how to use the silence. And so this is the difference. And I think think part of the problem is the the pairing of of Johnson and Winalda is a little bit awkward, but I think it's more a case of Winalda's working with a guy who just doesn't have – the background in the game that he does. Now, I'm not saying yeah. Ronaldo's perfect. Ronaldo falls into oh, that uh, American analyst trap of having to say everything, every chance he gets. Tim Howard was having the same problem, although he's not been on TV nearly as long. When Tim Howard did a couple of Premier League matches, he was doing the same thing. So, you know, Waldo has to understand that part, too. Uh, but the fact that he's working with a guy who's much more attuned to the way things are done in terms of football and, and, and basketball. And personally, I like Gus Johnson on both those sports. I think he's very good on those. But it just with his style, to me, doesn't that translate as well, especially a, a, an American football announcer. I don't think an American football announcer, and I've done it a lot, 
But I think, but I, you know, soccer was first for me. As someone who has no experience in soccer, taking from American football into that is difficult. I think somebody who's done more, say, basketball, hockey, or baseball would be better. So I think, I think if, if like if NBC Sports that would, would take, try the idea of taking Mike Emrick and putting him on soccer broadcast, I think he'd be very good at it. I good really God, You've got Doc yeah. on a game? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love Doc. I love Doc a piece. I have nothing but respect for him. I think he's tremendous. I he's one of my mom's favorites as well. But I think, I think yeah, yeah, this is, uh, the game being similar, I think, makes a difference too. But, but I, I just think, you know, American football, the way it's done here, especially the way it's done uh, on the, 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 the major networks, uh, it's, it's just for somebody who had no background. In it, I think it's just too difficult a transition. You know, Fox's thinking is clearly, uh, in terms of you know, personality-driven Americanization, whatever the case may be. And this is something they've done from the beginning. You know, remember, you know, when they got the NFL, they brought you know they they immediately went out and signed John Madden and the late Pat Summerall, who had just who had been with CBS until they lost the contract to Fox. They, of course, did things like the Cletus the Robot, the Fox track on hockey, if you remember, the, the orange puck with the trail oh, behind God, it, things like that. Puck. I still yeah. have nightmares of that glowing puck, by the way, to be oh, yeah. honest with you. But, yeah. oh, this we, is we've just... got a minute. We've we got a minute right. left in the show. Well, we got a minute left. Um, I want to thank everybody for being on the show. Um, next week is a Keith, is a Keith Kokinda show. I'm, I'm not going to be around next week, so... Probably going to be it's probably going to be a lot more Man United related because of Van Gaal coming in. I actually was more interested in that. Um, and also, um, you'll see me two weeks. So we're going to um, hopefully at the end of this week, the first of many of Matt Matt Hoffman's new show, The Substitutes, will be coming out on Thursday. Maybe we're still trying to set that up. Anyway, I want to thank Keith. Ty- Tanya, Russ Goldman, and Pat. And also, I before before it really goes in about a minute. What it does? Gus go to the stream too fast. I think so. I, I think you know he again. And this goes back to me from football, basketball. He's used to the speed of those games, and uh, that that to me is, is, is part of the problem. I, and I think he's just you know, so much of. Sometimes, you know, I, I, I hesitate because I don't want to come across and be too critical for fear of it come to bite me. But you do sometimes. You know, announcers need to remember that they're not the reason people watch. And I think this, I think this is, and, and a lot of times they're watching in spite of. But I think one of the things I found interesting with, with Fox, and you know, whether it be the FA Cup final or the Champions League final, or the fact that, as it turns out, that the aim for the, all, the end game all this is Gus Johnson going to be the number one guy on the 2018 World Cup and in Russia. And the thing is now, is I was seeing a lot of tweets uh, about people finding alternate sources to watch the game, online or whatever. And this is a problem if, if, you're, if you're Fox. Because you know, if they're watching in spite of who's announcing the game, okay, Fox we're off. Still watching. Okay. Yeah, we're off. I, I I carried it a little bit longer just. Yeah. 